0: From a studio high above the clouds of the Okanagan Valley, this is the Cannabis Podcast. Exploring the world of Canadian cannabis culture, one toke at a time. Now, here's your host and bud tender, Gary Johnston. All right, let me check. Yes, yes, studio has been sufficiently cannabis infused. We're ready to go. Welcome back. Or if this is your first time, Welcome to the Cannabis Podcast, where for the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things cannabis related, because quite frankly, I'm a little passionate about cannabis. This episode, here's what we got coming up. You've been hearing a lot of talk, or at least I have been hearing a lot of talk these days about a different THC. We've known for years that Delta 9 THC is what gets us high. That's what we've been kind of looking for in our cannabis. Well, Delta 9 has a younger brother. And we're going to talk about Delta 8 on today's show. And another thing that has been happening lately, I have been prodigious in my recording of Cultivar Corners. I have one, two, three, four, five in the can right now. There's a six that I'm about to do. So I get to kind of pick each episode which one is going to be. And this time it's JWC's old school black hash. I think you're going to like it. Plus, a cannabis-infused story about a beautiful silver soprano saxophone that I used to have and why I hawked it in downtown Vancouver. All of that and more is coming up on the Senior Edition, episode 65 of the Cannabis Podcast. All right, let's get right to all the family stuff. Delta 9 THC has been the predominant THC for years, at least in terms of what we've known. <laughs> That's the thing that before I get started, that I absolutely find fascinating about cannabis. How the science obviously has been there at the foundation. It's just the discovery that we have been making ever since, what, I guess about the mid-60s, mid-70s. And, and every year, every moment, it seems we're discovering something new that maybe we just hadn't talked about before, had always been known. Terpenes being an example. And here is a, another perfect example of that. We're now hearing a lot about Delta-8 THC. Now, this is an article I found, which is from Vegas Cannabis Magazine. And in fact, it is by Vegas Cannabis Magazine. The cannabis plant produces a wide range of potentially beneficial chemicals, sometimes called wellness molecules, including literally hundreds of varieties of cannabinoids, flavonoids, and terpenes. Functionally, flavonoids provide their host plants with pigmentation to attract pollinating insects, and have demonstrated significant anti-cancer efficacy, among other health-giving biochemical mechanisms. Terpenes play the evolutionary role of deterring pests and predators, while also attracting pollinating insects by their relatively pungent aromas. Terpenes have also exhibited considerable health benefits in hundreds of peer-reviewed research studies, including anti-cancer and anti-inflammation properties. The 146 cannabinoids discovered to date, all of which are exclusive to the cannabis plant, have demonstrated a range of wellness attributes. These include reductions in systemic inflammation, decreased seizure activity in epilepsy patients, pain management, relief from depression and anxiety, and even prevention of the neurodegeneration that accompanies common diseases of aging, such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Recently, the mainstream press has become enamored by a minor and relatively rare cannabinoid produced by hemp and cannabis, officially dubbed Delta-8-tetrahydrocannabinol. THC. Delta-8 THC is not the infamous molecule responsible for the sometimes significant psychoactivity or high of this herb when smoked or vaporized. That compound, as we well know, is Delta-9 THC. Delta-9 and Delta-8 THC are chemical siblings that researchers and scientists dub isomers or analogs. This means that they are very similar in terms of their molecular structures and other characteristics. Their minor differences, however, result in variable binding affinities with the microscopic receptors that populate the human endocannabinoid system, ECS. This change in cellular binding produces different outcomes from each compound. In some cases, the various outcomes of cannabinoid analogs are not only different, but polar opposite in response. An example is delta-9-THC, which stimulates appetite, while its varin analog, THCV, or tetrahydrocannabivarin, curbs appetite. Delta-9 is shown to be molecularly less stable than Delta-8, meaning it transmogrifies or degrades into other molecules more easily. In commercial applications, products containing Delta-8 THC feature the advantage of a longer shelf life than those formulated with Delta-9. Delta-9's relative instability means that it's prone to degradation, typically via oxidation or exposure to UV light, a process in which it converts to either cannabinol, CBN, a cannabinoid with an especially sedative effect, or Delta-8-THC. Despite their differences, Delta-8 and Delta-9 share many attributes. They both, for example, deliver psychoactivity. The discrepancy lies in their relative potency, with Delta-9-THC being more psychoactive than the Delta-8 variety. However, Delta-8 and Delta-9 also vary in the qualitative characteristics of their respective psychotropic outcomes, Patient and consumer testimonies indicate that Delta-8-THC delivers a sativa-like effect featuring energy, focus, and creativity, helping consumers achieve what some label the flow state, but with a slightly lower psychoactivity level than Delta-9. In terms of its presence in an individual plant, Delta-8-THC is relatively uncommon and, like other cannabinoids such as cannabigerol, CBG, typically occurs in volumes well under 1%. Rather than plant extraction, commercial production often employs the laboratory synthesis of Delta-8-THC and use of cannabidiol or Delta-9-THC as the starting material. And I'll leave the rest of the article for your own consumption. Very interesting to think about this younger brother of Delta-9, Delta-8, and what it may lead to in the future. Hard to say with the understanding that it, it's so, still so rare in the actual plant. I'm not sure we're going to be seeing this commercially viable anytime quickly in the future, but interesting to think about. And I also wanted to credit Kurt Robbins. He's the technical writer and instructional designer who wrote that article. And I thought that was a great description of what Delta 8 is and and how it's just a wee bit different from Delta 9. THC, CBD, terpene profiles, what's in me? Oh, please explain to me. Cultivar corner. Cultivar Corner, oh yeah. Cultivar Corner, please explain this stuff to me. As I promised myself, as I open up a new product, I may as well review it like a Cultivar Corner, because it could very well end up there. And here we go again. This time I decided to try one of the newer products into the store, and that's a product from JWC, and I'll let you know what JWC stands for in a little bit once I look it up. <laughs> The product is old school black hash. Hey, I'm an old school dude. Makes sense that I'd want to try some old school black hash. (laughs) On the artwork for the episode, I took a picture of the old school black hash on my scales. So that you can see, and that was was impressive. It was actually 1.1 gram. So definitely not underweight, which is much easier to do in hash because it doesn't dry up as much as cannabis does. (laughs) <laughs> but this is the part that I find most amusing at this point. I'm just, I'm looking at it and I'm, I'm chuckling because I'm looking at this old school black hash and it's, it's brown. <laughs> it, it's not anywhere close to being old school black hash. Now, now it does have a certain amount of um, strength. Uh, the pressed nature of it is closer to the old school black ash, and that I probably have to apply a little heat to the corner of this, Oh, no, hang on a sec. No, I can apply it with my fingers. <laughs> okay, never mind. It, it kind of reminds me in the way it looks. And and frankly, in the way it smells, which is kind of nice. It It's reminiscent of what I would refer to as blonde Lebanese hash. We used to get that a lot in the interior of BC years and years ago. That was the predominant hashish that we managed to get our hands on it was blonde Lebanese, it seemed. And this has a faint hint of blonde ebony's in terms of its uh, odor. I can't wait any longer. Uh, I have always loved the taste of hashish. Just that concentration of the trichomes, which of course is what makes up hashish. It's in whatever form, however you got there, whether it's pressed or through bubble hash or whatever the case is, we're talking about a heavy, 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 heavy concentration of trichomes. Did I throw enough heavies in there? (laughs) I think I did. And this is at 32.5% THC, is what this is running at. And now this also gives me another chance to try one of the other gifts from my son Ian at Christmas. And that was some uh, beeswax wick, which I've just always used my lighter. But hey, this is the time to use it when I'm smoking some hash. So I got my wick lit, and now with my lit wick, I'm going to light my ash. Oh, yeah, reminiscent of Hashish. It's not blonde Lebanese. And then, of course, the old trick, putting a card or a matchbook on top of the bowl, so the hash will stop burning. Oh, oh yeah. Now I remember why I like hashish. <laughs> yeah. Cause that was like one, maybe two, two hits. I'm re letting my wick cause I, <laughs> well, I put it out. Okay. I'm sorry. I just thought I should, but turns out I shouldn't have. Oh. Oh yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm liking the effect of it so far. Interesting though. I I went to dig up some details, and I went to JWC.ca. So that's the people who make the hash, and they are obviously a medical provider of marijuana, because you have to register as a patient on their site to get access to what they sell. That's cool. Obviously, there's a recreational side to it as well. And what I find interesting about that on the recreational side, they have no information on their website about the old school black hash. So instead, I did a search and I found a bunch of links to a bunch of different cannabis stores across the country. And the one that I'm including in the episode list is actually from Prairie records.ca. They all have exactly the same picture and they all have much the same write-up. So I don't think that's... I think that's rather irrelevant. But here's the interesting part. They have a picture there of old school black hash. And... Well, let me read you their description and then then we'll talk about whether or not it matches up to what I'm expecting. Our old school black hash is created, as the name suggests, using an old school solventless method. We start by sifting our fresh, aeroponically grown indoor flour to collect the trichomes. Then... With gentle heat, we pressed them together to create a consistent, slightly sticky black hash with the color of dark cocoa-forward chocolate. I might debate that a bit. The way the product was always intended to look, feel, and smell, our old-school black hash packs a powerful—no, let me rephrase that. The way the product was always intended to look, feel, and smell, our old-school black hash packs a flavorful punch that will take you back to simpler times. And now let's talk about the color uh, again. Like, look at the, if you look at the picture, <laughs> and then I'm I'm holding this up to the picture. Uh, mind that when I say this, I'm referring to the little chunk of hashish that you can't see, because of course this isn't video. <laughs> and when I hold that up against the picture, there's like, it's a completely different color. It really does remind me more of blonde Lebanese than I was expecting something looking like a black Afghani which was a really gummy, hard black hash we used to get. However, I will not discourage you just because it's not the color that they say it is. Oh, wow, it's really nice hash. Very flavorful, obviously full of trichomes. And all I did uh, with what I consumed was I literally just grabbed a corner of it and kind of pressed lightly with my thumb and forefinger. And peeled off a little sliver, and in fact I'm doing that again (laughs) because now that I've had one taste, why would I not have another? And so you just peel off a couple of little slivers like that, lay it in the pipe, put some fire to your wick. And the pipe I'm using is my prism pipe that I got from Burnt for taking one of their bud tender courses some months ago. Very nice taste of hashish. I can think of a couple of customers who should be trying this. Very nice. So it definitely has the flavor profile of a hashish that you would expect. It definitely has the kick of a hashish. I see, you. <laughs> see? I think I just demonstrated right there. It definitely has the kick of a good hashish. <laughs> because I'm really stoned and I've had about four or five hits of it so far. Has my happy eyes has that real real happy euphoria? Just general yeah, just generally sense of hmm, I really like this I debated I debated even picking this up today and suddenly as I was looking over the menu I thought, oh that's what that's what we'll give a try and let's do some hash. And with that intake, let me pronounce JWC's old-school black hash, although not quite living up to the black nomenclature, uh, is definitely old-school in terms of its thickness and how it works, how pressed it is. Old-school in terms of the effect it is, uh, very, very effective. 32.5% THC, and I obviously assumed or consumed or absorbed a good portion of that 32.5% THC. Because I'm a little whacked right now. <laughs> JWC Old School Black ash, if you have not given it a taste yet, pick yourself up a pretty little pipe, grab some of it, and I think you're going to enjoy yourself. From the Cannabis Infused Studio in the clouds, this is the Cannabis Podcast. And it's always nice to talk about local companies, especially here in the Okanagan Valley. And we've mentioned them a few times and they're getting mentioned again. That's the Balance Company doing some phenomenal work here in the Okanagan. They're going global. They've got a division in Australia. They do a whole lot of white label vaping, uh, creating vape carts for a number of different companies. They're doing all kinds of stuff. And this is a story from our friends at the Okanagan Zee. Valens has now received an amendment to its existing Health Canada standard processing license that allows it to sell dried cannabis products. A variety of pre-roll formats in different blends and sizes are under development at its newly operational K2 facility in Kelowna, the company says in a statement. Valens recently announced its acquisition of edibles maker LYF, and I'm not sure if we say life for that or not. They also have a number of white label agreements to produce concentrates, as we already mentioned, for drinks, Vapes, oils, drops, topicals, and other types of extract products, and they operate a lab. They are one of the most diversified companies in the cannabis industry. At the request of our partners, we're increasing our product offering to include pre-rolls and next-generation dried cannabis products, says Valens co-founder, CEO, and chairman, Tyler Robinson. We believe that this license, paired with our low-cost platform, will drive a competitive advantage for our partners in a category with price-sensitive consumers, The company says it has an edge in the market with its access to competitively priced, fresh and dried cannabis sources. So another maker hits the pre-roll format. Well done, Valance. You continue to grow and and it's cool to see such growth happening in a local company. And now a story that I found really interesting because there has been a lot of talk about, and I even remember before legalization happened here in Canada, Everybody was concerned that suddenly there was going to be all these impaired cannabis drivers on the roads. There were going to be hundreds and thousands of accidents and people were going to be dying before our eyes. Much of that hasn't materialized, which I don't think is a surprise to anybody deeply involved in the cannabis industry. This is a story from Normal, and it talks about a driving simulator study, which kind of confirms what a lot of us have already suspected. The presence of THC concentrations in either blood or oral fluid are unreliable indicators of driving impairment, according to data published in the journal Traffic Injury Prevention. Australian researchers assessed the relationship between THC levels and driving performance in 14 volunteers. Participants? Okay, now there's only 14 volunteers, so I guess that limits the uh, <laughs> how strong of a piece of study this is. <laughs> but nonetheless, I still think it's interesting. Okay, 14 volunteers, that does seem like a rather small sample size, doesn't it? (laughs) But I still think the information in this story is pretty valuable. Participants vaporized cannabis samples of varying potencies, high THC, low CBD, equal ratios, THC and CBD, and nominal THC in a placebo. Volunteers performed on a driving simulator. Blood and oral fluid samples were collected 30 minutes following inhalation and again three and a half hours later. Researchers reported that neither the presence of THC in blood nor in oral fluid was a reliable measurement of driving performance. They acknowledged that nearly half of the study's participants, so that would be seven, failed to show driving impairment 30 minutes following cannabis inhalation, despite possessing THC levels above commonly imposed per se limits. For example, five nanograms per milliliter in blood or oral fluid. Conversely, Several participants did show impairment three and a half hours following vaporization at a time when their THC levels were below per se limits. The blood and oral fluid per se limits examined often failed to discriminate between impaired and unimpaired drivers, authors reported. Moreover, blood and oral fluid THC concentrations were poorly correlated with driving impairment. It's almost impossible to infer how much cannabis was consumed or when it was consumed, based solely on a given concentration of THC in any biological matrix. They concluded, Due to erratic and root-dependent differences in THC pharmacokinetics, as well as significant inter- and intra-individual variability, blood and oral fluid THC concentrations, unlike BAC, or blood alcohol concentrations for alcohol, provide little information as to the amount of cannabis consumed or the extent to which an individual may be intoxicated. Collectively, these results suggest that the per se limits examined here do not reliably represent thresholds for impaired driving. The findings are consistent with those of several other studies, and there are links into the article that I have linked, reporting that the presence of THC is an unreliable predictor of either recent cannabis exposure or impairment of performance. A 2019 report issued by the Congressional Research Service similarly concluded Research studies have been unable to consistently correlate levels of marijuana consumption, or THC in a person's body, and levels of impairment. Thus, some researchers and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration have observed that using a measure of THC as evidence of a driver's impairment is not supported by scientific evidence to date. Very interesting story from the folks at Normal. Link to it is back at CannabisPodcast.com. Not sure what your opinion on all of that is, but... I definitely have an opinion and I'm not going to express it (laughs) because this is such a dicey area and um, one's particular use of cannabis and driving is something that will not be discussed in a public forum. Although it's probably not hard for you to imagine that it's just bursting to come out of me, but no, no. One day, one day, perhaps that will be a topic that we will discuss, but it is not going to be today. Instead today, Another interesting story. This is about the curious case of CBD. We've had lots of talk, of course, about THC and the various components of THC, whether it's Delta 9 or Delta 8 or even 11-hydroxy. And CBD has kind of always been out there as as we've kind of recognized the fact that CBD exists. But this story, which is from the folks at CannabisHealth.com, talks about the fact that CBD is handled very differently all around the world. In most Asian countries, CBD is lumped in with cannabis, so India's approach excludes seeds and leaves from the definition of cannabis. This allows for the continued use of bang and opens the door to CBD extracts made from leaves. While it is up to India's states to regulate this trade, they've tended to focus more on bang. So while CBD is regulated for medicinal products, it is otherwise essentially unregulated. In China, the distinction between hemp and cannabis is the presence of more or less than 0.3% THC. Nothing considered cannabis is legal and currently only the provinces of Yunnan and another that I'm sure is really hard to pronounce (laughs) allow for the planting, processing, and sale of hemp. Thailand allows for hemp seed and hemp seed oil to be used in food or cosmetics. It also allows CBD extract if it is 99% and contains less than 0.1% THC. CBD extracts of up to 0.2% THC are allowed for medical use. In the Americas, things are even less clear. In Canada, where recreational, industrial, and medicinal uses are regulated, CBD is treated the same whether it comes from hemp, defined as cannabis with less than 0.3% THC or not. Colombia doesn't allow any recreational use but regulates anything over 1% THC for medical use. Anything under 1% THC must also be registered by a licensed holder, but there are no restrictions on use. Paraguay considers anything under 0.5% THC acceptable for industrial uses, with no limits on CBD. Peru allows the same for anything under 1% THC, but CBD-based products are considered pharmaceuticals and must be prescribed. Uruguay considers anything less than 1% THC acceptable for mainstream uses. Brazil looks to be seeing some changes to their laws soon, but currently does not allow medical exemptions for cannabis-based foods or cosmetics. In the U.S., purchasing CBD is federally legal, as long as it doesn't contain more than 0.3% THC. However, rules for selling products containing CBD are to be defined by the FDA, who have currently only approved a single product, a pharmaceutical preparation. A few states have also enacted their own laws, with some being more favorable to CBD and others, such as Virginia, requiring a prescription. In South Africa, CBD is allowed in food products, but only if it is naturally occurring. It can't be an additive and is for an explicitly carved-out use or product such as hemp seed, hemp seed oil, or cosmetics. So the entire world is confused as to how it should be treating CBD and being the non-psychoactive, or rather the non-intoxicating cannabinoid in cannabis. So there you go. Our language is continually changing, and we are continuing to improve our education on all the various factors of cannabis. Just prior to me diving into a story, let me refresh. This is a little sample of something that will be featured on a future Cultivar Corner. And this is a product from Graybeard Cannabis. This is their top cola flower. They only sell it in quarters because the buds are too big to fit into the smaller containers. I have a bud in front of me that is 2.7 grams. I won't dive too far into it because we will talk about this in a future cultivar corner. But what I got thinking about for this episode uh, was way back when. And again, I think the reason that I like to tell stories that happened many, many years ago is the relevance to what the world of cannabis was like then compared to what it is now. The, the trials and tribulations one had to go through to either buy, purchase, or sell cannabis. And this is actually a story that involves all three of those. <laughs> so let's, let's get started. It starts with, surprisingly enough, a soprano saxophone. For lack of a better explanation, I ended up with a soprano saxophone, which I played in the high school band in an interior city in BC. And really a beautiful horn. I was really happy the, the day my parents bought this for me so that I could be in the band. It was a gorgeous horn. I learned to play it fairly well. I played it for a few years. And then I got into cannabis. <laughs> which which doesn't mean that, that, that the soprano sax had any less worth. Or value, it's my perspective changed in terms of what that value was. So, we're now a few years after I actually received the sax. I used it to play in a rock and roll band for a little bit. And after that band kind of melted, uh, we were in Penticton. There was another band that we were partnered with. Our manager was the same. And that other band had a singer who was by the name of Mike Grinowski. And boy, could he sing! Not a surprise that years later that Mike Ranowski dropped the Owski part and became Mike Reno of Loverboy. So there's a real sidebar to it. So this was a story that started in Penticton. That's where I was living at the time. I had the soprano sax. Band we had started or tried to get started didn't really take off. And it kind of just melted under our feet. that left me in Penticton with a soprano saxophone that... I mean, I enjoyed playing it, but I had no, no value in terms of what, what could I earn some money with. And a desire to go to Vancouver and see if I could score some pot to maybe make some money. So off I went. And that was back in the day. Now this, again, is dating myself. Back in the day when there were Greyhound buses that traveled in between cities on a regular basis. Took the Greyhound down to Vancouver, stayed at a friend of mine's uh, for the night, uh, camped out in his basement. My friend's younger brother, Timmy, Decided to come along with me on my little excursion. So my excursion was: I was heading down to Gastown, which at the time was a place where you could illegally score some cannabis. There were some areas there, and and that's what part of the story is that were a little dicey, shall we say? So Timmy and I headed off <laughs> down into downtown Vancouver. Me with my soprano sax. Where the first stop was at a pawn shop, pawned the soprano sax, and I think I got a hundred. $100, $125, and I had a bit more money. I had about $150 to, to buy a pound of pot. In perspective, I guess that's probably hard to understand these days. <laughs> but back then, it was possible. We did our little search around Vancouver, asking everybody we could uh, we could find down in the Gastown area. And finally came across somebody who said, yeah, yeah, I got a lead on it. And, and he started taking us into this. Uh, if you've ever been in the downtown east side of Vancouver, there are some very seedy hotels. And this fellow was taking us into one, which kind of got me a little freaked out. I kind of pawned the money to Timmy, who kind of did something with it as we walked into this weird hotel. And we didn't stay in there very long because it just didn't feel right. And I said, no, no, never mind. I'll, I'll I'll, check out some other sources. Found somebody else who finally said, yeah, yeah, I got some. Uh, and if you meet me in uh, just outside of Woodward's in 15 minutes, which... Of course, dates the story again because Woodward's is long gone from downtown Vancouver. But there we were, 50 minutes later, Timmy and I, uh, Timmy looking very, very sheepish, me not so sure as well. I mean, I had some street smarts, but I, I wasn't used to necessarily being in this particular environment. There we were, just outside of this vestibule entry into Woodward's. Two other guys show up. We go into the vestibule. He pulls out a... Pound a pot and little plastic bag, and I hand him the money. He hands me the pot, and we both quickly leave that little vestibule. And I've got a pound a pot inside my jacket. And Timmy, I, I'm still not sure that he appreciated actually coming along for that particular ride. I think it really freaked him out. But nonetheless, I ended up with that pound a pot. Found myself back in Penticton. You see how easy it is today. You walk into a cannabis retailer, you look at their menu on the wall or in paper form, and you decide what cannabis you're going to walk out with. Nobody's threatening to harm you. There's no danger. or <laughs> It's just a much better world to buy and consume cannabis. And if we don't remember how it used to be, we'll forget how... It is now, because I know there's a lot of people who still complain about what we got now. Yeah, there's a lot of problems with legalization. But compared to what I had to do back when I got rid of my soprano sacks to buy that pound of pot, it's a heck of a lot better world, and I'm happy for it. If you ever have any ideas for content on the Cannabis Podcast, you are encouraged to send a note to info at CannabisPodcast.com. If you think there's somebody we should interview, that's also a good suggestion. Next episode of the Cannabis Podcast, it's a conversation with Therese Bowers. Therese is a cannabis wellness coach who wants to introduce you to a gentle healing experience with cannabis. Her story in the next episode. That wraps it up for episode 65 of the Cannabis Podcast. From the Cannabis Infused Studio, high above the Okanagan Valley... This was the Cannabis Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Bobrudy, and I'm the founder and host of Cannachix Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.